0: Hi, Dr. Sam Waldron here. The fields are white for harvest, but the laborers are few. Most men who need a seminary education can afford it the least, and no seminary is fully supported by student tuition and fees. We rely on the generosity of our supporters and friends. Would you give today and help us to make informed scholarship with pastoral art affordable for the next generation of gospel ministers? Visit cbtseminary.org slash give to learn how you can help. This resource combines expositional sermons and lectures from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary to help equip listeners for the work of the ministry. Time that it goes for two hours, is that correct? Yes. But you normally quit at what time? Uh, well, since it's you, uh, we normally quit at 15 after. 15 after? Yeah. Talk fast. That's it. I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles again to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. As you're turning there, let me ask you do you have a, a favorite figure? or maybe I should say in the plural, favorite, favorite figures in church history. Uh, given time, I, I imagine we could have some uh, good recommendations made. You know, well-known, greatly used servants of God. Of course, the patron saint of Reformed Baptist Charles Spurgeon uh, would be there. Calvin, I'm sure. Or maybe you're more contemporary and you think, as I would, Dr. Lloyd-Jones Uh of course, and we referred in the previous hour to the martyrs. You think of Ridley and Latimer and John Bradford and on and on that list goes. Or, or maybe it's actually contemporary men that that uh, faithful servants that are still around that you esteem very highly. Uh, for Wanda and I especially, uh, the first Reformed Baptist preacher we'd ever heard live was Dr. Peter Masters in London. And uh, he still has a very uh, special place in our hearts. And of course, there's this uh, pastor, Albert M. Martin, and uh, the place that he holds. Or maybe it's the names of those found in Scripture, David, uh, Peter, Paul. And, and these are some of your favorite figures. Those who stood for Christ, loved God, proclaimed his word, served his people, and did so over the long haul. Well, it's very right. To recognize such, and even to hold them in high esteem, but more than that, to imitate their godliness. And you recall how the Apostle Paul himself uh, set himself up as an example on more than one occasion. For instance, he writes to the Philippians in 317, he says, join in following my example. Mm -hmm. And then when he comes to the next chapter, he said the things you learned and received and heard and saw in me these things do. First Corinthians chapter four, imitate me. First Corinthians chapter 11 and verse one, imitate me even as I also imitate Christ. Well, he understood that our Lord Jesus is the supreme and ultimate example to follow. Like John puts it, we ought to walk as he himself walked there in first John two. But Paul did not shy away from setting forth Christ's servants as models to follow. Examples, and in fact, even so, himself, but not just himself. Because we find uh, Paul saying, for instance, that Philippians 3 passage, not only join and follow my example, but he says, and mark those who you have as us, as a pattern, Uh, us for a pattern. And there the us, the plural, he's talking about himself and Timothy, so it's not just me, it's Timothy. And oh, by the way, there are others that have us as a pattern. You mark them as well. Well, we've seen how the writer of Hebrews does this. Chapter six, about uh, imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Or again, Hebrews chapter 11, and that persevering faith is exemplified uh, throughout the Old Testament. But then especially we noted verse seven, if you look at that again of Hebrews 13, remember those, who rule over you? Who have spoken the word of God to you? Whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct? So these would be people they knew firsthand. Their pastors, if you please, they have spoken God's word. They've been faithful preachers and teachers of that truth, even come what may. And it does seem to speak uh, those who are no longer in this world. There's been an outcome, an exit, a way out or a way of escape, as it's translated over in First Corinthians 10. That, that speaks to an interesting view of death, doesn't it? All right, All the trials and tribulations, but here's a way of escape uh, that God has provided uh, after faithful service. Now, as I said in the previous hour, was it by martyrdom uh, that these had sealed the testimony with their own blood? They'd stood firm to the end that way? Or is he simply saying they left this world by natural Causes after a life of trouble and so forth. Well, either way, they are now with the spirits of just men made perfect, enjoying that blessed rest. But he's not simply saying, consider the outcome, how they ended their lives. It is considering the outcome of their conduct and whose faith follow. And therefore, is how they lived all the way up to the end. That is to say, these who Uh, having um, uh, lived by faith, then died by faith, and now you follow that faith, their doctrine and practice and so forth. And he recalls to that end, he tells them to really engage in serious consideration, to remember these, how they've lived as well as what they've said. Well, I pointed out in the previous hour that this is really a display of the love of our Lord Jesus Christ to give the local church to give pastors shepherds after his own heart to use the language of jeremiah uh that that it's the expression of that same love whereby he gave himself for the church and he will then present the church as his bride in the meantime it's out of that same love that he does that sanctifying cleansing work by the word and that especially in connection with church life well that was now the previous hour, but I did say in that final point, there are two matters that we see, especially about Christ in the church and pastors that he gives and so forth. And the second matter is his grace. And I don't mean simply that unmerited favor in ordaining uh, the church and providing of shepherds, though that's true, but I'm talking now especially about his ongoing work of grace in and through these men and those churches in which they labor. Grace in the same sense as 2 Corinthians 12, my grace is sufficient for you. Well, there's not simply unmerited favor, but there is that divine enabling grace that uh, he had in view when he spoke, our Lord had in view when he spoke to Paul. Or to put it this way, we've looked at something of these exemplary rulers in Hebrews 13, 7. How do you account for them? What made them, what they are, or I mentioned the martyrs, or for that matter, the Apostle Paul. How do you account for what they were? Because if we think in terms of something earthbound or natural, we're wrong. We've missed it. You know Paul's words. I thought to turn there, but I, you know them well enough. In Romans 7, 18, how Paul said, in me, that is in my flesh. Me, just considered as me. In me, in my flesh, there dwells only a little bit good. Is that what he said? No good thing. That's Paul. Therefore, it wasn't like, and you know, I had a good Hebrew upraising. You know, I mean, I sat at the feet of Gamaliel and he really did a good job with me. And that's what made me what I am. No. No good thing. Okay, well, then, what accounts for Paul? Well, he says it in 1 Corinthians fifteen ten. By grace, I am what I am. And it's those words of our Lord Jesus Christ when Paul was whatever that thorn in the flesh was, my grace, my enabling is sufficient for you because in your weakness, my strength is made perfect. So when Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing, well, that doesn't include Paul. He could do, no, that was Paul too. And so with us all. And so when we see these exemplary rulers in Hebrews 13, seven, we must understand we're seeing the Lord Jesus at work in his sufficient grace. In fact, it's interesting. You know what the next verse says right after Hebrews 13, 7? It points us not to those rulers, it points to the source of those rulers. Or what? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, forever. It could well be he's saying, the writer saying that with a view of these guys are off the scene now. These guys who have spoken the word to you, they're gone. Christ isn't gone. He's still the same yesterday, today forever. But I leave that aside. The benediction at the end of this letter, you remember, he's talking about God working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. That's what explained these exemplary rulers, and so it is still. These godly men, godly examples of sinners who are saved by Christ. He granted them faith. He granted them repentance. In fact, he gave them grace and then gave them to the church. And that equipping that we have in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, the list of qualifications, well, that's simply displays of Christ's grace. Their faith, uh, their godly conduct, their labors, their persevering to the end, uh, faithfulness even unto death. How to explain that? It's Christ, it's grace. Without me, you can do nothing. You abide in me, I and you, you bear much fruit. God working in them what was well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ and so with us all. And in fact, this is how it is that these men or all pastors, First Peter 5, 3, can be examples to the flock. You know, it's too possible for us to look at certain men, whether it's Paul or Pastor Martin or whoever, and to think, or your own pastor. I can never, that's, I can't, I, that's, I can never live like that. I can never, hold on, wait a minute. There are to be examples to the flock because they are sinners saved by grace, the same grace, the same Savior that saves each of us, right? And because it's the same Savior, the same grace, then they can be and should be examples, and we should then follow those examples because it's the same well, they are, but they are by the grace of God. Whoa, well, whoa! I've got the same Savior, same grace, right, right? Okay. And therefore, it's not rare. It's not well. You know, you got a few people in church history, and he really gave grace to them. But not so much the rest of us. That's not true. That's not true. Uh, not just in Paul and these figures in, in church history. I think of these unknown elders or men who are put in position as elders in Titus chapter one. You remember uh, Paul writes to Titus and said, I've left you in Crete you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city. Now, I don't know how many churches there were in Crete. Supposedly there were a hundred cities. Were there a hundred churches? And, and was it going to be a case of a plurality of elders? You appoint elders, plural, in each of those cities where there are churches. However many cities, it's more than one. And... More than one elder, right? And then he gives the qualifications, verses 6 through 10 or so, uh, in, in uh, Titus chapter 1. And you're familiar with that. I mean, he must be blameless. He must be holy. He's quite the list there. Where was Titus supposed to get those elders? Because after all, as Paul goes on to say, Cretans are always liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. That's what Epimenides, a man who was a Cretan, said. And Paul then gives an inspired amen where he says, this testimony is true. So Titus, you appoint elders, plurality, in every church, where in every city where there are churches, you're going to have to send to Ephesus. You're not going to find Cretans. they're always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. No, no. In a relatively short time, <laughs> these men have matured in godliness. And could be recognized as Christ's gifts to those churches. That's the grace of God at work. Right? Right? And what about believers that you know? Exemplary parents, godly young people, your pastor. And what about you? It's God's grace at work. Hebrews 13:7, Christ's work throughout history. It shows his willingness. To give grace. You invite me on you, you bear much fruit. And therefore, when you think of Paul or other heroes in the past, well, do you think in terms of ah oh, I see Christ, I see what he's doing. He's the one. I am what I am by the grace of God. Well, that's what I'm seeing here. I see the Lord Jesus Christ. Or as he again said to Paul, In in your weakness, my strength is made perfect. It's displayed. Right? But Paul's got all kinds of weakness, but ah, oh, look what I mean. he ah, oh, there you see Christ, not Paul. And shouldn't then we see and be mindful of Christ in these displays of grace, even marveling at his work, not just in Paul, but again, in Christians, you know, you think of those in the past, but not just them. How about Christians who are now up, breathing, living, walking? Do you see God's glory in Christ and do you joy in it, notwithstanding maybe even certain problems? You got Paul writing to the Thessalonians and he says, what Joy. Now, what thanks can I render to God for all the joy I have for you? He saw Christ. But you know what he went on to write? And I'm praying night and day to come and see you that I may make up what is lacking in your faith. Not like, I wish I could have some joy for you, but I just see what's lacking in your faith. And that, no. What I do see of the grace of God, I see is Christ at work. I've got great joy because of you. Okay, I need some work. But still, you can see this is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, is that what you see? And does this not encourage you? It should, shouldn't it? Wait a minute, the same grace, the same Savior in Paul. That's my Savior. That's his grace still. Well, do you expect to see it? Do you pray to see it? Do you expect to see it? He's not limited by our weakness. Remember what he said to Paul, in your weakness, my strength is made perfect. Okay, But now that begs a question. How is this Christ-given enabling experience? Or to approach it from a slightly different angle, what are the differing degrees experience? Because surely not everyone even in Paul's day was like Paul as he himself recognized. The very verse in which he says, by grace I am what I am. He also says, I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God in me. So clearly even then Paul recognized, wait a minute, it's not in in our experience, it's, it's not always the same. So what accounts for the differences the uh, the fact that there are differing degrees experienced of Christ's grace, as you can see in different Christians, how do we account for that? Well, I'm since it's a Sunday school, I'm not preaching. I'm going to throw it out to you, anybody. How do you account for the difference? You got Paul, and then you got somebody other than Paul. How do you account for the difference? Is Christ God's grace given? Willingly, right? But how can we say, well, here's Paul versus some Hebrew believer who's struggling and waffling and the like here, that is being addressed, and many of them evidently were for the writer to write. He wasn't just singling out one guy when he wrote Hebrews. How, how do you account for the difference? It's same Christ, same Christ, same Savior, same grace. How do we account for the difference? Anybody? Don't you hate it when Sunday school and they're asking you questions? Well, let me press on then. Okay. i say Ephesians 4, 7. Be 1. Ephesians 4, 7. Each one is given grace, right? According to the measure of the grace of Christ. Yeah. And that's the first point right there. It underscores the sovereignty of Christ. Okay? That he is sovereign in dispensing of this enabling and the like. And that underscores it's not mechanical. He's personally involved in doing this. Uh, But let's not forget, though, in saying he's sovereign, he's also very willing. Right? Well, he's sovereign. I didn't get much because he didn't want to give me much. Right? He's somehow, no, no. In fact, the Lord Jesus saying, uh, you know, that very passage, you abide in me, I in you. He goes on to say, you abide in me, my word abide in you, and you will ask what you will, and it will be given you. What's he talking about there? He's talking about grace. Remember, he says, "In this the Father is glorified. Do you bear much fruit? That's the very next word, verse eight. So clearly, he's saying that he's willing to give. You ask, I'll give. Sovereign, but he's willing. One answer surely is this. We have to understand that the Lord uses means. He gives grace, but he does use means. And his giving of grace is so often at least joined To the use of the means. I've made reference to John 15 already. Uh, You who abide in me, my words abide in you, and you ask whatever you will, and it is given. So you got two means of grace His word and prayer, right? And then you've got like John 4, uh, 2, you have not because you asked not. Or in Acts 24, I'm sorry, Acts 4, verse 24 and following, here they're praying, they're crying out to the Lord for mercy, and great grace was upon them all. Mm-hmm. And so that again is answer to prayer. Or again, the means he uses, the washing of water by the word, that's how he's cleansing his bride, preparing for the day. Right away in Acts chapter 2, what do we have? But the uh, means of grace there by way of the apostolic doctrine and the or a, the apostles' teaching and uh, uh, fellowship and breaking of bread and prayers. Or let's talk again about Hebrews 13. These rulers, they spoke the word because they knew the word. They were in the word. They loved the word. Uh, that was instrumental in making them what they were. God's word, right? And so, too, these Hebrew Christians, they heard God's word taught as well as seeing it lived out by these men. Well, that, again, is a means, right? When Peter, you shepherds, you be examples; you elders, you be examples to the flock as part of their undershepherding. And by the way, these Hebrews were under-good under-shepherds. They were watching for your souls as those who must give an account. So I understand you're now in a season of, of church oversight meetings. Well, that's, again, a means of grace, right, where the shepherd is watching or your souls. And here they are, they're joined together in church life, like in 1024 about their considering one another, how to provoke or stir up to love and good works and exhorting one another. And so, on. so these were means that they had. And it's the means that God has given to us as well. And therefore it's for us to use those means, the word, prayer, all of church life, to be faithful, to do so out of desire, like when Peter says, desire the pure milk of the word that by it you may grow. Well, he says as infants or as newborn babes, desiring the pure, that by it you may grow. Actually, what's commanded in that text, you're all familiar with that, right? First Peter two two. What's commanded in the text is desire. That's the imperative. That is, I'm obligated to keep a good, strong desire for the word of God. Well, how is it, my brother, my sister, with you? Or that commitment to the word that we see in Acts 2, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, etc. and surely love for Christ and desiring more of Christ, using the means to have more of him. And what should we expect if we neglect the means? There's the means he's given for our good. And we neglect the word, we neglect prayer, we neglect church life, what should we expect? Well, we're still gonna plunk along, great grace. Don't go to work and see what you expect by way of a paycheck, right? That's just the way God gives our daily bread, yes, but here's the means that he uses to that. You have not because you ask not. So we could say, what makes for the difference in the experience of grace? Well, surely the means of grace does factor in there, that we're to use all of these things even to continue steadfastly in them. But again, it's not just mechanical. You know, you go to some vending machine, you put money in, you hit the button, and you get out whatever comes. Well, that's not how the use of the means of grace is, right? It's not just some—you know, there's a lever you pull somewhere, and there you get it. You get so much grace. Let me just remind you: these Hebrew Christians had listened to very able proclaimers of God's word. The rulers who had spoke and lived what they did, plus they had all of church life considering one another. Exhorting one another, stirring up to love and good works, shepherds watching for their souls. And yet, remember why Hebrews was written. It's written to Jewish Christians who are struggling, who are waffling. Here they are; they're they're toying with going back into Judaism. So much so they needed some strong warning. If you remember with Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10, the warning is against apostasy. Now it is true that in both texts, Hebrews 6. The writer assures them, I'm persuaded of better things concerning you. I'm not saying you're apostate, but look, the road you're on, that's where it leads. Don't go there. They needed some strong warnings. These people have some serious struggles going on. Even though they were sitting under rulers with preaching the word and had good church life together, they still had struggles. It's not automatic. It's not mechanical. Again, good spiritual rulers, good church life you can still have problems. In that case, with anyone here, you ever fall into problems? Well, that means there's a further matter in the experience of enabling grace. And I'm going to put it in the form of a question that is rhetorical. What part does faith play in this? What part does faith play in our use of the means and our experience of Christ's enabling grace? When we see someone like Paul, versus some believers who are floundering or waffling and struggling like these Hebrews, is it in any way due to a difference in their faith? Now, I'm not talking about the object of their faith. The object of the faith is all the same, it's Christ, right? Same savior, same hope, same salvation. But even the Lord Jesus himself, you remember in that uh, boat being tossed about by the storm in Matthew 8, he refers to them as a little faith, And of course, that's why they were in the panic that they were. He's asleep in the boat. And yet, Lord, we perish. What changed, oh, by the way? What changed? Had Christ changed? No, he's the same yesterday and forever, okay? Yeah. What changed to put him in a panic? They took their eyes off of okay. him. Okay. Yeah, that would be included. But the big change that happened? The weather. You're going to pin your hopes on the weather? Yeah, good luck with that one, right? But you're right. They forgot about Christ. And so he says, you have little faith. Had someone there had much faith, but wait a minute, I thought we going to perish. He's in the boat. Okay, the waves are washing in, but yeah, his purpose for us has not changed. His love for us has not changed. His ability has not changed, right? That would have been the right response. But instead, it was little faith. Well, is that the case? Because scripture speaks of a connection with our benefiting from the means and faith. For instance, when Jesus himself, one of those many promises he gave of answer prayer, Matthew 21, 22, whatever you ask in faith, believe, you'll receive. He tied the connection between faith and the means of prayer. James does the same over in James chapter one about uh, anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask for God. But ask in faith, not doubting. You doubt, don't, don't expect it, right? So he ties that connection. Or even in the book of Hebrews, it speaks of those who heard the word, but it was not mixed or mingled with faith. Well, does that not teach, I, I think it appeal to other pastors. but does that not teach us that in order to profit from the means of grace, it will be by faith, or if you please, consistent with our faith that we really do believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that He gives grace, and we believe, really believe, that He uses the means to store up and to give that grace. And so believing it, that we actually engage steadfastly in the use of the means—the word, prayer, church life. And the like, and real expectation, really believing. Without him, I can do nothing. But wait a minute, I abide in him, and abide is not some out-of-body experience. It's simply remaining in him in a living relationship, where he's real to my faith. He's real to me, and it's in that connection his word abiding in me and hastening, and then giving grace in the Father's glorifying. I want to approach it from another angle. Galatians 5:6, faith works by love. Well, where there's that real love for Christ. I mean, that real faith in Christ, there will be that real love for Christ. And is there not some uh, correspondence between the strength of faith and the strength of that love for him, loving him who is not seen? Why the difference among believers and their experience of his grace? Well, sovereignty that factors in. The use of the means, that factors in. But surely we have to say faith is clearly a factor. And I would say to you, that's one reason why the writer of Hebrews says, whose faith follow? These exemplary leaders, such displays of the grace of Christ. And here's what they're known for, their faith. Whose faith, well, of course, that's the whole point of the book of Hebrews, isn't it? right? Hebrews 11, faith, faith, faith. Well, there it is. Here's why they did as they did. They truly believed what was true. They not only spoke God's word, they believed God's word. They profited from God's word. They lived by God's word that the Lord Jesus was real and precious to them. They sought him. They found him. And so believing that they kept on, even all the way to the end, loving Christ more than life itself, receiving grace from him to be faithful. Here is how these exemplary leaders were what they were, by Christ's grace. And the writer says, now you remember them you give serious consideration of their outcome and follow them not just their conduct but what gave rise to it their faith and not just faith in something but rather faith in Christ that's what's being sounded throughout this letter and if you know, and I'm sure you do, something of the book of Hebrews and what it's addressing, like the waffling, the struggling, and so forth. Can you see how appropriate this exhortation was to those first recipients? They're waffling. They're doubting. Their faith was, at the very least, shaken. Uh, it certainly was lacking. And in fact, it seems they were really in something of a declension. You remember what said of their faith back in chapter 10? These very people that he's writing to. Come to chapter 10. The writer refers to when they were but babes in Christ. Here in Hebrews chapter 10, let's take up our reading at verse 32. But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle of, both by reproaches and tribulations. So you yourself were receiving a hard time and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated for you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. That was their faith early on. And they remained steadfast. And they wouldn't shy away. You know what? If I buddy up with this guy, he's a target, and I see as being identified as a Christian with him, I become a target. Hold on, I don't want to do that. No, no, no. Had compassion. You're right there with me. Whoever this was in my chains, here's what's going on. So these folk had had a strong faith. They were flourishing, even when they were at least relative babes in Christ. But what happened? Well, clearly there's been some kind of, of a decline that's taken place. What strong faith they had then, but now they're doubting, they're struggling. There had been use of the means, right? They still had church life, they still had men speaking the word of God to them, but they'd also, as the writer says in chapter five, verse 11 through 14, they'd become dull of hearing. They'd been hearing, but they'd become dull of hearing. These things were not so real to them. A spiritual neglect. Chapter six, he says, do not become sluggish. Well, they at least face the danger of being sluggish. You got the means. You love Christ, people. You believe these things, but yeah, kind of slacking off. And why is that? Is that not due to a faith problem? A lacking? Not that faith that was exercised when... Mm-hmm go ahead, take my goods. Go ahead, confiscate them. <laughs> I kind of inheritance is far better than anything you to take. Now here they are. Should we go back to Judaism? What well, they've got all these outward things and we don't have those things. But here's my point. Christ freely gives grace. So many marvelous examples in scripture and in history. And it does, at least often, show a correspondence between Faith and grace. And therefore, do you want more and more the experience of his grace? Well, the do is told because believing what you're told, believing his grace is sufficient, believing that God works in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, really believing that he uses the means. Therefore, pray, ask, he says, his word abiding in you and giving yourself to church life, edifying one another, Hearing the word of God corporately. Seeking God in prayer corporately. Using the means in faith, in expectation. Lord, you do give grace. And to that end, keep your desire strong. And if now you're in a declension or in days to come, stop it. Stop it. Turn around. Don't become sluggish. Imitate those who, through faith and patience, Inherit the promises. We've got this great cloud of witnesses in Scripture, but even after that. Therefore, run the race with perseverance to the end, looking unto Jesus, who is not only author, but he's also the finisher of our faith. Believing on him, seeing his displays of grace, his word abiding, Christ's real, A life of living union with Him and God Himself, working in us what is well pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ. That's really the message of Hebrews. So, if the Apostle Paul, who said in me this in my flesh was no good thing, could be what he was; if these elders, leaders over these Hebrews or in Crete, could be what they were. Why not you? Why not you? Christ's grace is sufficient. And it won't do to say, yeah, but that's to me, I've got all my weakness. Yeah, that's right, that's what he said to Paul. In your weakness, my strength is made perfect. Your weakness is not a hindrance to his grace, right? Therefore, use the means of grace faithfully, believingly, expectantly, and remember that grace is seen in the doing. Lord, I will be more faithful when you zap me. As soon as I get zapped, I'm going to... One of the classic displays of this is in Mark chapter 3. You got this man with a withered hand. And the Lord Jesus commanded, stretch out your hand. Well, I can't with it. I mean, I've got this problem. I can't I can stretch out my hand. I can't stretch out my hand. That's why it's withered. That's not what he said. What do you do? Stretch out his hand. What marvel that this man could stretch out his hand. And he, look what he has done. He, he stretched out. It was the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. But it wasn't while he's saying, no, I can't. i got a withered hand. Mm-hmm. He obeyed. And grace was given in the doing. And so, dear brother, dear sister with us, that's the Christian life. He gives grace in the doing. It's God who works in you to will and to do his good pleasure. Therefore, you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, He gives grace and do it. One more example of it. Who fed the 5,000? 5, That's 5,000 men, that kind of image. Who fed them? Jesus? Okay, you're right. Except this. Remember, he said to the disciples, you feed them. They're in a panic. What? How are we going to wait? That's 200 days wages. We don't have that kind of money. Where are we going to get this kind of red? You're right. How many loaves yet? Five? A couple of fish? Okay. But who actually set the bread before them? The disciples. the disciples. Groups of 50, they took the bread. He gave it, they took it, it. So in actual fact, they did feed them. As Jesus enabled. Right? Well, so with us. We've got our command, we've got our marching orders, live the Christian life. He gives grace. Then believe him and stretch out your hand and feed the 5,000 or whatever the responsibility is as he's laid on you. Not neglecting the means, but using the means. Take in the word, seek him in prayer, use all of church life, and do as he's commanded. And grace is given in the doing. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our great and gracious God, our Father in heaven, we thank you for all these displays of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not only in scripture, but throughout church history. Lord Jesus, you are indeed the same, yesterday, today, and forever. And we ask that in our weakness, your strength would be made perfect, that your power should be seen, that the glory should be yours as you give us grace and you help us by that enabling to live to your glory, even in all the details of life. We ask your blessing upon this church. We ask your blessing on the remainder of this day. And we do so with great confidence in the name of our Savior. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Preaching and Teaching, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. To learn more, visit CBT